UK Motor Talk. Evening everybody, you join us again for another riveting podcast where we talk about a load of nonsense from the automotive world that interests us and hopefully interests you. To my left, I have Graham. Hello. Hello. And to my right, I have Jim. Good evening. Good morning. Good day. And you think that would mean that actually we were all sat somewhere together, but no. Once again, we are recording this in remote locations all across, quite literally, the south coast and up north slightly from the south coast. But... Uh, we can't have it all, can we? So as the phrase goes, we are all over the place in every possible way. When we were last chatting, we were talking about cars that are rebadged other cars. Now, this happens a lot these days because you've got things like the Golf, which is the same as the Audi A3. You've got it the same as, say, Leon and so on and so forth. Is that is that rebadging or is that just platform sharing? Because the underpinnings are all the same, aren't they? The, uh, the floor pan. yeah. I, I, I guess so. I mean, and lots of manufacturers have done this across not even the same group. But you had the Volvo V40, which was the same as the Focus underneath. Um, you've got, as we said, the MQB platform there. So we've got the Golf and and the Audi and uh, the A3 and and the Leon at the same time. You've got the PSA cars. So you've now got the Corsa is the same underneath as a Peugeot, whatever. Who really cares? And the <laughs> Citroen. Similar, who really cares? I mean, they're funky-looking things, but there we go. So those are going to be the same sort of underneath, but you've got cars that are probably, and not even just cars, vans, which are quite literally the same vehicle. So if you look at the Nissan Prima Star, which is the same as a Vauxhall Vivaro, which is the same as a Renault Traffic, and then you've got whatever it is that's this, this little um, Mercedes van. Well, it's a, that's always been the case with vans, or it has in the last couple of decades been the case with vans. I guess the exception, I think, was the Sprinter, because I don't think anybody made the the Sprinter as anything other than a Mercedes. Yes, the Crafter is exactly the same van. Oh, is it? Yeah, right, the, well, there you go. Yeah, the Mercedes and the, the, the Mercedes Sprinter and the Crafter are, are identical vans. But the only one that isn't at the moment, I suppose, is the um, is the Ford Transit, which has been for a long time its own thing, but of course won't be for much longer. Yeah, because any minute now, the the large van underpinnings are going to be Ford, aren't they? Or, or is the VW even going to be made by Ford, I suspect, in the same factory? Uh, and the smaller vans are going to be VW underneath. So uh, VW's caddy, of course, quite a successful vehicle, probably a little bit more successful than the Torneo Connect, I would wager. I think you see a few more of them out and about on the road. Yeah, I but certainly think that's true. Ford sticking to what they do very well with large vans, VW with smaller vans, and, uh, and of course there's cost savings and other bits and pieces, and in today's modern motoring world, saving a few pennies here or there is uh, good news for the manufacturers. It's expensive to develop cars, let's be honest. I can't really blame them, because I don't think there are many manufacturers that make truly terrible cars. I mean, some of them are just recycled. Um, Seat made the Xeo for a while, which was quite literally an Audi A4, B7 A4, with wing mirrors stuck on the doors and a different front and rear bumper. And it was the same car. It was just, it was ridiculous. And then you had the Daewoo's, which were sort of Astra's and bits underneath. And then they were rebadged as Chevrolet's. And honestly, you think Chevrolet, there's a kind of romantic American idea about Chevy, isn't there? And I'm sure Graham will have something to add about this very shortly. But genuinely, all the UK Chevys, dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. They're they're very very poor cars with uh, a rather grand name. They've been around an awful long time making uh, 
cars, which weren't always great, but they have made some great cars. I'm a particular fan of the the 60s Camaros and, and the Corvettes. And, you know, who can gainsay a Corvette? And does it deserve to be in any way connected with the Deu? No. So no. I think, well, Deu started off with uh, with rebadging. You said it was an Astra. What what was the Deu Astra called? That was a... Nubia? Nexia? Nexia. Nexia. Mm. Yeah, so the uh, the Nexia was uh, the rebadged Astra. But then a Chevrolet Lissetti is a Vauxhall underneath as well, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, if you're going to choose something to base your car on, I'm not sure an ancient uh, an ancient Vauxhall is going to be the, the thing that you'd want to do. Well, no, I mean, um, it, was, it was years behind when it came out brand new, wasn't it? The, the underpinnings. Yeah, but it was cheap. And I suppose this is the thing with Dacia. If you look at the Dacia, it's, it's basically a Renault parts bin. The main models, the three models share the same windscreen, they use as many parts that have recycled as possible, so bits of old Clio and things. The Dacias are basically a generation old Renaults, using up the parts bin where you can. But actually, I, uh, I don't mind a, a Dacia, because it, it doesn't pretend to be anything that it's not. It's just an honest little car. It's cheap, it knows it's cheap, and it shows that it's cheap, and it tells you why it's cheap, but it does what it says on the tin. So, actually, I think that's OK. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've driven several in recent years, and... and... Yeah, they're nothing. They're not spectacular, but at the same time, as you say, they're they're a good, clean, honest motor car. Uh, and if you haven't got an awful lot of money to spend and you don't want anything which is too technically complex, do on the money. And of course, if you want the uh, the peace of mind of a manufacturer's warranty as well and predictable servicing bills, etc., uh, then often going new is uh, is the way to go. So, as you say, if you can't quite stretch to the uh, knocking on the door of twenty thousand pounds for a Fiesta these days, or twenty thousand, if not thirty thousand pounds for a Focus, then uh, then no, Dacia does seem to have a, a good offering. And I guess these are the bits that have been tried and tested, so you kind of know that they work. Tried, tried and tested is uh, is very much marketing speak for yes. This has been around for fifteen years and it hasn't quite blown up, so uh, we think it's okay. There we are. It's it's a generation adrift. But then the other, I, I guess, great piece of badge engineering in recent years has been the the MG, which has very little to do with a sports car manufacturer of that name. You know, the the MGs again. You know, they're perfectly acceptable cars for the money, and I've driven several of them, and they're okay, but they're not MGs. I think MG have got it on the money at the minute because what they've done is they've gone into the market, made a 2x4, so a two-wheel drive 4x4 SUV thing, which is what people buy because people don't know if it's two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive, whatever, because generally speaking, the most off-road these things go is when they get bumped up on a pavement. So they've created a car that's actually quite good for that, and it's attractive, it's a good-looking car, I really like it, I have to say. I think it's it's pretty well built for the money it is. Yeah, they start about twelve and a half grand. They come with a five year warranty, they're buttons to buy, they seem to be buttons to run. And then they do an electric version as well, which again is cheap by comparison. Very, very good value. And I think these are the right areas to be moving into. If I was a auto manufacturer now, I would build an SUV, not because I like them, because they're not really my kind of thing. But because that is popular and that sells cars, and that's kind of important if that's what you do as a business. <laughs> and electric ones make a lot of sense because people want electric cars right now. And actually, if you drive, if you've driven an electric car, and lots of people scoff and say, oh, rah, 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 but if you drive one, they are truly quite brilliant. What do they say? <laughs> they do say that. I've heard that being said before. I'm reminded of speculating the other day on what noise should be applied to electric cars because at some point they are so quiet that the number of accidents will increase 
and and um, inevitably they will have to have some sort of noise. And it, it occurred to me that perhaps a, a four-year-old child going broom, 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 broom is exactly what you need. And you just record that and uh, all the electric cars will be going down the road going broom, 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 broom. The mischief in me, the, the one thing I do love about my hybrid is when you're in a car park or somewhere like that, you can just pop it in in full electric mode or at low speed. It's probably in electric mode anyway. And it's a very good game to see how close you can get to people who are just walking merrily down the bit where the cars should drive through rather than staying to one side. How close you can get to them before you beep the horn and make them soil themselves. It's a <laughs> hilarious game. As a rough guide, I'll try and get to uh, to amber on the front parking sensors, if I can. Obviously, green amber and then red, it starts beeping at me. So, uh, no, if if you can get away with amber and then beep the horn, that's a, that's a very good game. But I, I look at it as educating people and shocking them into being more aware in a car park that electric vehicles are around. So, hopefully, valuable life skills being taught there. Going back to what you were saying earlier, people, uh, you know, if you were going to build cars, you'd build SUVs, and because um, that's what people buy. Not not so much in the month of April. Um, pe- people just didn't didn't buy any cars at all. Ninety seven percent down. That's quite dramatic drop. Uh, yeah, I mean to to put it into perspective, the the Peugeot Rifter, whatever well, that is, has entered the top ten of model sales in the UK at number six. Should we, uh, should we have a guess, gentlemen, as to how many they sold to get to number six in the charts? 24. Five. No, this, uh, that's, that's being slightly pessimistic. They sold 94, but that made it the sixth best-selling vehicle in the UK. Are these bought by the kind of people that ignore social distancing? I suspect they are, yes. Is this the reason why? Or, or, did, or did a fleet just buy them? Looking up and down the uh, up and down the list, yeah, uh, the Ford Torneo Custom, which is a uh, quite a, a well-appointed and rather nice minibus type vehicle, uh, they sold a hundred and eight of those. But I think Ford were taxis. Uh, uh, possibly taxis, or possibly I mean, Ford have been doing some good work in terms of manufacturing masks and ventilators and providing vehicles. Um, obviously, a lot of their their fleet to be parked up at the moment, and uh, we've seen pictures of uh, certainly lots of bigger car rental companies and their car parks and their overflow car parks and their fields next to the car parks are just overflowing with higher cars. Um, a lot of these places based out of airports, of course, and uh, not that many people flying as we know. So all the cars that would normally be roaming around whatever country they're in uh, are just piling up. Um, but uh, no, the Tornado Custom, they did 108 of those and they'd be registered for uh, for good causes and being out and about. Um, but top of the charts was the Tesla Model 3. So they managed to sell 658 of those in April, which is um, probably about as much as the next... Uh, second, third and fourth place put together, I'd say, off the top of my head. So not not a bad showing at all. And yet Mike Hawes was saying this morning when he was interviewed that uh, virtually all of the cars that were sold were sold to fleets. I can't imagine many fleets buying 653 Tesla 3s, but maybe some are. Well, of course, if uh, if we're talking fleet and, uh, and company car buyers, then uh, and this year, as uh, many company car drivers will have seen in their tax codes, has been a, a bit of a rejig of company car tax brackets. Uh, so anything that's that's electrified drops off dramatically. Um, so there would be a, a good chunk of people driving in company cars that that have a choice of 
you know, whatever they want within reason up to a particular budget will have gone for a Tesla Model 3 purely because it, I think it would cost them absolutely nothing in terms of tax. Just the tax so, advantages makes the sale. Yeah, so if uh, if you could have a, a 3 Series and it cost you a couple of hundred pounds a month or it was a Tesla Model 3 and it cost you nothing a month, well, it's a no-brainer. You might as well have the Model 3, mightn't you? Hmm. I think if they were the same money, I'd still consider the Model 3. Um, no, I, I possibly think... would. I think if someone said to me, do you want a 320D or a Tesla Model 3, what would you go for? I think I'd go for the Model 3. Yeah, yeah I'd probably I'd go, go with for the Model it. 3. I'd go with that. If, if, uh, if it was an M3 or a 330 or 330 yeah, e, 330i, then, then it's a different conversation. But, uh, yeah, well, particularly with the um, company car tax on diesels of late, you want, uh, you want out of a diesel if you can. I think I would consider spending... In fact, I would consider spending my own money on a Model 3. I think as a, as a family car, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Because how often do you do those super long drives? And if you do, you can get an extended range version. If you're worried about, you know, clubbing baby polar bears to death or something, you're not doing it. You're just destroying bits of the planet with mines and all that kind of thing. And you can plug it up outside your house if you've got a driveway. If you don't, then you can't, obviously. You have to plug it into a lamppost or something. I'm impressed, Gates, that you've gone into David Attenborough mode. Uh, I, I see a future career for you. I think the real problem at the moment with, with wildlife is the fact that there seems to be a lot of, of nesting birds, which is lovely. Obviously, there's less humans to disturb them and the, the skies are clear and everything else, which is great. But they are pooing all over my car all the time. And I, I have, I've had to go out and wash the car Drive, you know, drive around to the back of the house to wash the car because my garage is at the back of my house. Drive back around the front, wait indoors again, and yes, it's someone pooed on it again. I say someone, I mean a bird, because if someone had pooed on it, we'd have a bigger problem than just birds. You would have some very unpleasant neighbours. We, we we have um, unfortunate uh, local variation or country variation of blue poo from the pigeons around our way, and that's because they eat uh, the flowers of a particular plant, which. My house is surrounded with, and then they blue. A glowing technocrat. You've got to be very careful with uh, bird poo on the car if they have eaten berries or plants, haven't you? Because that's when it's really, really acidic and uh, and starts to burn into the paint quite quickly. Because I'm a boring kind of man, I did some a bit of reading to try and find out why it is that that birds seem to think it's a good idea to poo on cars. I mean, I assume they poo on everything else, but cars in particular, apparently, it's because they have a preference of pooing over water. For some reason, I don't know why. I'm not sure I really care either. But they see the cars, see that they're shiny and think, oh, this is water, which is why, so the research said, you're more likely to get pooed on uh, a very reflective car, so like a black car, or if it's blue or whatever, so it looks like water, uh, and a red car, not so much. Um, uh, so if, if it's like mine and blue and I've actually had a couple of days here or there to be able to clean it and put a couple of coats of wax on it, then yes. blue and shiny is just asking for it to be pooed on. Exactly that. Over the weekend, and we talked about this on the last podcast, there was a number of car shows online. Classic Vicarious being one, raised about 12 grand. And actually, I thought some, some pretty incredible stuff turned up in inverted commas if you're of the Land Rover persuasion like Andrew then there was a, a beautiful Series 2 Land Rover that popped up in an enviably pristine front garden and presumably not used for chewing across it but a bit of everything from TVR to an Austin A40 to uh, an Austin Healey whilst we're on that to old Mercs which was fantastic and people not only displaying the, the, the plaques to say that they'd taken part in the, um, in the show but people were actually putting spec sheets and things out for them there's some great stuff. There's, there were some brilliant minis there. 
I love a Mini, as you know. There was an amazing uh, Austin Cooper S, which just looked absolutely superb in, in a sort of full race trim. Another one that's, that's again, sort of sporting the skid plate and the bonnet straps. They're just, I was always blown away by the, the quality of the cars that people have. Um, even fire engines, just a bit of everything. I think this is a great idea, and I think going forward, this is something we should probably do in the winter when everything returns back to normal, because I think it helps keep the enthusiasm going for these things. I think it's all too easy to leave something sat there and, and, and wonder whether it's worth it or not. I think if it's worth it to you, it probably is worth it. And I think sometimes you just need a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of encouragement, and some fellow friends, enthusiasts, whatever, just to sort of point you in the right direction and go, that's, that's pretty good. A game plan for, for this year, had things not turned out somewhat differently was we did talk about visiting more classic car shows and actually mm. talking to owners because these people put an awful lot of time and effort into their cars and, and you mentioned their spec sheets. They're very often, you know, the car itself is surrounded by spec sheets and awards and photos and build photos and build videos on screens. People put an awful lot of effort into these things. Definitely. Absolutely agree with you. Uh, and I think any part of a project where you start to get the low, you know, and you kind of wish you'd never started, and you just need that bit extra to bump you along. And when you do something like this, and it also raises money for charity, and 12 grand is, is a good lump of money that people have managed to raise, and I think it, it's a brilliant thing. There, I say there were a few who also took part in, uh, in Cylinder Club over the, uh, over the weekend, and people brought along different cars, but to be honest, you could bring along cars, I suppose, that you used to own if you wanted to. Um, nothing would stop you. Um, but people just sharing their, their love of cars generally, which is something that hopefully we can do with you. And I know we talk about all kinds of nonsense about emissions and electric cars and the, the death of some of the cars that we love. But actually, the truth is we all love cars. And it's really nice to come together just to chat about these things sometimes. Yeah, I think we we all love cars. Unfortunately, I think pretty much all of mine are long dead. Uh, are most passed through my hands and... Uh, ended up in scrapyards somewhere, apart from my very, very first car, which is the only one I think I've ever owned that appreciated. Uh, my first car was a 51 Ford Anglia, and I bought that for £7.10. shillings. I sold it for, I think, 22 quid, and it went on up from there. And I, I think it, eventually somebody took it and turned it into a hot rod. And they were then fetching tens of thousands at one stage. You know. It's like anything. If you've got a, uh, a barn big enough to store them in for long enough, then it's, uh, it's practically worth hanging on to anything these days, isn't it? I found one of my cars in a scrapyard. Um, and honestly, it's one of the most disheartening things I think that has ever happened to me. I had a, an XR3, an XR3i, which I bought when I was at uni. And it was, one, it was a convertible, so the roof came off, and we used to all go out four up and go for a blast out and about you know as, as you do when you're, you're sort of that sort of age and so many good memories with that car and to see it on the top of a pile at British Scrapyard was very sad it was it was an immaculate car when I sold it no never no never go and revisit a past vehicle it's it's bad news <laughs> there's a girl that I used to know who had a who had a mini and she I can't remember if she bought it back or whether she bought another one that was the same. But she said it's like going back to, to a car, it's like going back to your first love, it's never the same. 
No, I remember. I share uh, share your pain with the scrapyard story. The last time I ever saw my my first car, a Mark II Golf, was uh, in a scrapyard after I'd uh, had a bump, and then went to um, go and get some bits and pieces off it and out of it the next morning. So uh, yeah, the, the last time I saw it was just through the gate, but the the side that I'd crashed was the opposite side, and the side that I'd just had repainted and uh, and all polished up, and it looked factory fresh and immaculate was facing me and it seemed it seemed such a waste but at the time it was a couple of hundred quids worth and although of course if it was uh, on the road and tidy now then then they're fetching a couple of thousand but even uh, even at today's money I think um, damage of that sort it had uh, crushed the the B pillar and, and the roof had bent in slightly etc I think that's fairly beyond salvage even with uh, with current prices but a, uh, a terrible shame, and uh, yeah, another car I I'd sold uh, a Mark II MR2, um, immaculate, you know, polished up beautifully, loads of coats of wax on it, immaculate wheels, polished the stainless steel exhaust on it, and everything. It really did look pretty. Sold it and and saw it about six months later with curved wheels and cheap ditch finder tyres on the back and a couple of scratches down the side of it and it just looked very, very sorry for itself. It, uh, it did upset me quite a bit. I want to move on from this and I want to talk about... We say about cars that we love that have been that scrapped. I want to talk about cars that are crap that we love. And there are a few out there and there are a few things that you go, why on earth would you like that? I have... I quite enjoyed driving a Daihatsu Sirian. No idea why, but there was something about it. It was a bit crap, but I liked it. But I think the ultimate, it's crap, but I really like it car for me, is the DeLorean. Because, let's face it, they're rubbish. The whole joke that they're 88 miles an hour, they couldn't do 88 miles an hour, which is why that was funny. It had, was it, Renault, Renault engine and Ford gearbox, but it wasn't very fast. It wasn't, it just wasn't great. Bits fell off of it. They weren't... They weren't great cars, full stop. So, do you guys have anything that, honestly, is a crap car, but you kind of really like it? Mm, no, I, I've got a certainly a crap car that I test drove years and years ago, uh, which was genuinely a crap car, and I think they sold about three of them. That was a Mahindra Jeep. I used to road test the cars for the newspapers and so on, and I would pick a car up on a, on a Saturday morning or a Friday evening, and keep it for a weekend and then write it up for the following week's issue. Uh, but the Mahindra Jeep, I drove it for probably 10 miles and I got seasick. The suspension was so all over the place. It was an awful thing. I took it back to the dealer and said, look, either I can write a really, really awful review. It's a horrible car or we just forget about the whole thing. And we agreed <laughs> to forget about the whole thing. I just gave him the keys back and said, uh, you know. Don't let's ever talk about it again. You know, it was a dealer that I got on with very well, apart from that car. I think that's the equivalent of when your mother used to say to you, if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Quite so. Let's come back to the DeLorean, which had a, a pretty auspicious start. I mean, the guy that, that was involved in the Mustang at the very earliest stages was also involved in that. Well, John Zachary DeLorean, though, he, he was a, a hell of a character, wasn't he? He was... High up in GM before deciding, uh, I think it's, a lot of it was his ego, that he wanted to build his car. Unfortunately, he suckered, uh, I think so it proved finally, the Northern Ireland government. But also the thing that really uh, marks the whole affair down for me is he suckered in uh, Colin Chapman, 
who suffered not very long after the whole excrement hit the air movement device, a major heart attack and died. So, you know, one of the greatest uh, F1 engineers ever was um, conned. The DMC-12, when it was designed, it looked futuristic. It had gullwing doors, which ultimately didn't really work. But by the time the car had actually come to fruition, the 70s had passed, we were into the 80s, and actually it didn't look quite so cool anymore. It looked a bit old-fashioned. I mean, the fact that it was a whole joke, and let's face it, Back to the Future is really what's responsible for the cult status of this car. I think without Back to the Future, it, it would have disappeared you know, into obscurity. But it's just, I think it's such a cool-looking thing. I saw one actually a couple of days ago that had been stanced. It had been dropped on a set of, of uh, the standard rims, but they'd been banded out slightly and made into split rim. I think it just it looked the, the mutt's nuts. It really did look so cool. Uh, I mean, I've been lucky enough to have a go in a couple of DeLoreans now, and I think they are rubbish. <laughs> but, yes, I do really love them. I think they're superb. But built as a basket case right from the start. Oh, absolutely. The thing that really got me, though, was a Goodwood Revival. I saw one parked in the car park, and it was a few rows ahead of me, and there was this, this brilliantly crazy Dutch guy that uh, just got back to his car. And uh, he said, oh, please, you know, if you want to have... If, do you want to go? Do you want... You know, uh, well, Absolutely. So when I've had a chat with him about his car, and I, I told him how much a fan I was, I said, I just got to ask, how do you clean it? And he got a Brillo pad out. And I was like, no, 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 you can't. And he just was going, you, he goes, you must, you must keep the lines straight. And he was just going down the car. And I'm like, no, you just, it's just, it's horrible. Just the, the sound of that going across the metal. That's how you keep the brush finish, of course, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it looks great, but I think if you drove it anywhere, people would just want to touch it, and it would be... I think it would be one of those cars that's a nightmare to own, not least mm. because when you put it in the garage, you wouldn't be able to get out of it. Unless you either had a very wide garage with a very high roof. What do you do when you get into a car park? How do you get out? Who knows? Park, park <laughs> at the other end. I mean, uh, no, in, in terms of crap cars that, uh, that you quite like, I've not, not really got any crap cars that I like, but cars that other people seem to like, but I thought were crap... Uh, I mean the the smart the original smart car whatever it was the yeah the, uh, great the fun one. I love it love them uh, see uh, driving one of those was the single worst motoring experience of my life <laughs> it was so bad I think if that was the first car I ever drove I'd have never driven another car again it was absolutely <laughs> horrific it was uncomfortable the gearbox was slow and dim-witted the steering wasn't connected to the front wheels by anything mechanic at all. It it was just an absolutely horrific experience. If you wanted to change up just as you bounced off the rev limiter, you had to, to pull the paddle to change gear at about 3,000 RPM. It was absolutely horrific. But, uh, again, p- people seemed to rave about them. And, uh, and God rest him, Sir Sterling Moss, I think, had a, uh, a smart car, didn't I? And it, 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 it amazes me, a man of his driving talent and calibre even considered a car like that. It's very odd. Uh, he, wanted, he wanted something he could nip about uh, London in, um, you know, because he was visiting properties he owned and so on and so on. But, you know, when he, when he famously got knocked off his scooter and uh, injured, he then decided that four wheels was a necessity and not two. I, I enjoyed the Smart. I drove the Smart when it first appeared and I really enjoyed it. It was like, it was like driving a washing machine, but it was great fun. <laughs> I think they're terrible, I have to say. Um, and they've got now they don't even make any sense because they've made them so big that you can't do the smug thing of parking nose into the curb that they always used to do 
They're, they're, they're just now a bit... They're a Twingo, in fact, underneath. Uh, yes, yeah, see, I, I remember that parking nose into the curb thing, but... Uh... That that was uh, that was a thing when I was at university, and, uh, and invariably after the the lunchtime session or um, the morning session or indeed any session of the day down the pub, any uh, any smart car that was parked nose into the curb was uh, was soon lifted up and readjusted to to be parked properly, um, as it was that no, just an arrogant way of parking. Didn't agree with it. They did make the Twizzy, the seat in front, seat behind the really small electric car just slightly bigger than a scooter you had to pay extra for doors see i like that if that's a crap car then i like that so that can be my crap car I, that i like. I drove one of those a lot um because we had one of them at work and the the, the twizzy was it was a great little thing it would do 56 miles an hour which terrified the hell out of anyone you had sat behind you and you had a seat belt. And, and honestly it's the most looks i've ever had in any car i've ever driven Driving one of those from the middle of town, partly because I'm not very flattering inside profile, it turns out, when I'm set up. <laughs> um, but genuinely, so much fun. And at the time, I lived 25 miles away. No, 35 miles away from work. I mean, that, that is a hard sell, driving one of those down a bypass or dual carriageway or something to get home. But great fun, even if you could only do it at 56 miles an hour. Andrew and I both drove Twizzies uh, on one occasion. They were telling us at the time that there was somebody who commuted down the M1 in one. And I've actually seen them on, on motorways. I don't think I would want to drive one without doors on a motorway. I think the Twizzy has... It slightly smacks of Sinclair C5. No, see, I'd, I like a Twizzy. I'd, uh, I'd have a Twizzy just for buzzing to and from work. I'd, uh, I'd have a Twizzy without a doubt. I'd like the Sinclair C5. Dare I say it? I think they're great. I mean, admittedly, you will be squashed, and with a modern motor and a modern battery, now I think that thing could be, could be superb. You'd want a very, very, very good crash helmet, I think, to uh, <laughs> to drive one of those in London traffic. You'll be under trucks more than alongside trucks. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There's lots of cars that that I think one of the one of the worst kit cars I ever drove, and there's a sub section of kit cars was a beautiful Bugatti 35 that was powered by a VW Beetle engine. Ooh. You know, that gorgeous-looking car. It was in a classic car dealer's, and they let me borrow it for a few hours. But, you know, it looked wonderful, but it sounded and drove absolutely awful. A Tory Bugatti designing a dune buggy, I don't think so. That was that was not a favourite car. You, you've just said that the Bugatti 35 kit car is a car that's crap, but you loved. No, 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 I hated it. I came upon this uh, obit, uh, I think it was in the Times, of a guy called Terry Doran, who I didn't really know who he was, but I did read it just out of curiosity because there's a picture of him with George Harrison. And apparently this is a guy who was a very, very small-way Liverpool car dealer who sold George Harrison a 1962 Ford Anglia, or sold him a Ford Anglia in 1962. It was elderly, I think, by then. But they rather took to each other. And having taken to each other, they, he then introduced them to the rest of the Beatles. And he was the man that then became their car acquirer. So having bought them all of the Radford and the Wooden Picket Minis, I'm sure you'll have seen those super luxury minis that they all had in the 60s. I mean, they had so much money coming in the door. They went mad on cars. So they moved very quickly from those minis 
to Aston Martin DB5s, DB6s, E-types. And he was, in in the end, he was buying so many luxury cars for them that that was all he did and became the man to go to for cars if you were a rock star in the mid-60s to the point where he set up, in fact, a dealership for rock stars with Brian Epstein. And one story that I did read about him, which I thought was an absolute gem, was the Rolling Stones manager wanted a Bentley, but he didn't know what colour he wanted. So Terry Doran acquired eight Bentleys in different colours and drove them around Berkeley Square underneath the windows of Andrew Oldham's offices until he picked out the colour he wanted. And that was the one they then bought and they sent the other seven back to the factory. It's just... just an extraordinary character. He also managed to supply some of the lyrics to various Beatles songs, which is a, a, a quite a feat in itself. The quote, which I'm old enough to remember, but you probably aren't, which was, uh, how many holes does it take to fill the Albert Hall? They couldn't think of a word to put in there. So he actually came up with the word fill. So that's quite a, a feature of your career to be remembered by for one word, the word fill. How many holes does it take to fill the Albert Hall? Well, I was just having a look to see the chap himself, and he does look like a rock star, just in his own right. What a character. Well, he ended up heading Apple Core Publishing, which uh, he knew nothing about publishing. But uh, John Lennon, I think, said to him, you know, you can have the job as long as you keep us laughing. And if you can keep us laughing, yeah, he was a scouse comic. And uh, that kept him in the job. I'd seen some of the cars that he bought. He bought a Jaguar E-Type for Harrison, an Aston Martin DB5 and DB6 for McCartney, a Mercedes for Ringo Starr. I mean, that's pretty nice cars. And there's one I don't even know how to pronounce. Is it a Fasel Vega? Fasel Vega? Fasel Vega. Vassal Vega, what is a one of those? They're fabulous. Chrysler powered, mostly Chrysler powered, uh, French Grand Routiers of the early 60s, mid 60s. I've just done a quick Google. There is a bit of a Mercedes vibe about that with the twin headlamps, the one above the other. I can see what you mean about the touring, but it really does look like an old Merc. They were really, really elegant cars. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great looking thing. I'm surprised I've never heard of it, but uh, do you remember the old, uh, sort of the. the Old W, what do they call them? The two thirty S's. They were W W one one ones. So looking at it, the way that the the way these cars look, it's got that classic Merc sort of W one one three sort of vibe to it. Really, it's actually a really pretty looking car. I'm just amazed I've never seen one in the middle. They metal. were very powerful as well. You know, they, they were they were five and six liter Chrysler engines with torque flight slush boxes, and and um, they were very powerful. No, very cool looking car. And very, very collectible now. Well, I came. Uh, I don't know if uh, if I uh, if I quite reached Terry's heights, but I, don't know, I came. I think the closest I ever came to that was um, servicing Nick Mason's daughter's exige at the uh, dealership I used to work at. So that's about as close as I've ever managed to get to uh, to looking after rock stars and their cars. But I had a lovely sit-down chat with Keith Emerson once. He came in and uh, we stood at the desk. So can you take your name? My colleague said, oh, "Can you take your name?" So that's Keith Emerson. He goes, oh, that's quite a famous name. He goes, I'm glad someone remembers us. Um, <laughs> Can I tell you a Keith Emerson story? Go which has nothing to do with cars whatsoever. I think 67, maybe very early 68, I saw the Nice playing in Eastbourne in the Winter Gardens. 
and they reached their allotted time, which I guess was about 10 o'clock, and the ushers turned all the power off. So we were in the dark, and the band couldn't play. So somebody went and found a couple of torches, and they pushed a grand piano onto the stage, which happened to be in the wings, and then carried on playing for another hour. He was a very, very nice guy. I met him a couple of times, and he was a fabulous jazz and rock pianist. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely lovely man. It turned out his parents lived down the road from us, yeah. and we must have sat there half an hour, 45 minutes, just chatting about throwing daggers into organs. It was, it was absolutely superb. To end the podcast on a uh, slightly cheerier note, obviously we've all uh, all been missing some racing this year, but the uh, the good news out of various governing bodies, I think, is that we're, we're going to get racing again fairly soon. Um, I, I've got a feeling most of it is going to be behind closed doors to start off with, unfortunately. Certainly looks that way. Uh, we uh, won't be able to attend, which is a, a, a very big chunk of, uh, of motorsport, is the noise and, and the feel and the smell of the track. Um, but having said that, I'd, I'd rather have motorsport live in real life on telly behind closed doors with no spectators than, uh, than no motorsport at all. So the touring car should get going um, very early August, 1st, 2nd at Donington. Uh, so it'll kick off with three rounds there. But then it's, it's the end of the year is actually looking quite good for that because we've got a round first week in August, second week in August, third week in August, and the fourth week in August. So good month there. A um, couple of weeks break and then two more weekends in September, two weekends in October, finishing up November 14th and 15th at Brands Hatch. So I think it'll be uh, it'll be wet, it'll be cold, it'll get dark very early. But I think we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to make a trip up to Brands towards the end of the year. Well, um, by, by that end of the year, we might actually be allowed in the door. Yeah, I think much as it would be nice to go to Brands Hatch August 8th, 9th, as that's very close to my birthday, I think uh, I think that will be a little bit too soon for crowding uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people into a, a relatively confined area. I think that would be just too much of a risk. But um, at, least, uh, at least that looks like it's getting going. And Formula One has said they, they look at getting going in Austria, 3rd to the 5th of July for their first weekend. Again, behind closed doors, but the track owned by Red Bull, of course. It used to be the A1 and the, the Osterreich ring, now the Red Bull ring. Um, so no doubt there's been a, uh, a concession on uh, manufacturers' bonus money paid for the uh, for the ability to do that. But what do we all <laughs> think about <laughs> what do we all think about plans for two race weekends back to back at the same track or two races at the same track over a weekend? I saw one comment that that Silverstone reckoned they definitely got two, but were angling for a third on a following weekend, so a Saturday Sunday. Uh, two separate Grand Prix, and the following week, another Grand Prix, which I suppose, given the fact that virtually all of the teams are based here, is hardly a surprise that they would angle for that. I think it makes sense. Why wouldn't you just have them yeah, all together? Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense, or have the uh, have the races a bit closer to each other, or geographically as as well as time scale as well, um, to get the excitement in. But I, don't, I, I think if you have two... Grand Prix distances held at the same track at the same weekend, unless the weather's very different one day to the next, I think the results are going to be similar. So is this a good opportunity to try a sprint race and a main race or a reverse grid race? It's It's been opposed by a lot of people for a long time or people have been in favour and then it's fallen at the last minute and we stick with what we've got is now a, a prime opportunity to change that. 
I think there are sort of all kinds of negotiations going on, and certainly one of those is about the much-mooted expenditure cap, which has been going sort of up and down like the proverbial yo-yo, because I I think at one stage Toto Wolff wanted the cap reduced and was very vocal in, in seeking a reduction in that. And the cap that has been suggested... Uh, or was originally suggested pre-COVID, was $175 million per season. Uh, But now um, that's being nudged down and nudged down, and there's all kinds of uh, details hedged around that. And I saw one suggestion, which is even that uh, all of the teams will be forced to use 2020 cars in 2021 because that's a way of keeping everybody's expenditure down because everybody's losing a vast fortune. And, uh, you know, weeks and weeks ago, we referred to the possibility of Williams falling out of the frame. Haas has also been mentioned as as being borderline. Certainly, uh, we don't want to get down to uh, 12, 14, even 16 car fields. We need to do something to keep the um, smaller players in the field, even McLaren, you know, hurting. Oh, definitely. I'd rather have a um, a full, you know, 10 or 11, 12, you know, if, if we have a budget cap, will it maybe encourage some new teams to join? You're far better off with a 10, 11, 12 team field, you know, 22, 24, maybe even 26 cars on the grid, rather than having the bigger teams running three cars, perhaps. I think that would just lead to even more predictability. Mercedes over a race weekend, well, if they've tied up the podium, it, it takes away that excitement for, OK, well, if the Mercs are one and two then who's going to be third? There's at least a bit of interest there, whereas if the Mercs are first, second and third, it's, there's even less interest there, isn't there? But the, the budget cap, if it does tighten things up and uh, you know you, you can spend your way to the top in Formula 1 not very easily, that's that's doing it. A, that's doing the Mercedes team a disservice. Yes, they've got a fantastic budget, but they do work fantastically well with it. Um, but it would be interesting to see how they get on, or, or even indeed if Mercedes do carry on. You know, is is Formula E becoming a bit too relevant for them, and and will they be looking to to walk away? I did see one suggestion yesterday that um, involved uh, Mercedes pulling out of F1, having served its purpose uh, from a marketing point of view. And the, being the point at which uh, Lewis's contract would be terminated and he would be free to move to Ferrari, which would then put a certain Mr. Vettel out of the job. So, um, I don't know. We live in interesting times, not all of them good. You know, mm. May you live in interesting times was an ancient Chinese curse, I believe. Well, I think 2020 as a, as a whole is, but uh, hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully you're all staying at home and staying safe and uh, and we can get out of the other side of this sooner rather than later and get back on track. Yeah, bring back some real motorsport with people driving real cars with real not imaginary ones with real engines <laughs> making lots of noise. Although just to uh, just to finish of course for the uh, the ultimate realism I've seen that Tamiya have released a Formula E car over the last couple of weeks a Formula E body shell Formula E racing car and of course the sound is 100% accurate. It's absolutely spot on. I don't know why they didn't do it sooner. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm always tempted by toys and, and road control cars and all those kind of things. One thing that I did see, which I couldn't let go by, was that they have released a Playmobil DeLorean. Uh, Back to the Future DeLorean <laughs> with all the figures and everything else. This thing's brilliant. All the lights work and all the rest of it. And I saw it and I thought, when I was small, what I would have given to be able to have that. It even has a little hook so you can do the, the bit where it speeds along the... Uh, along towards past the clock tower and, and, and you know, picks up the, uh, the lightning as it hits. 
And I saw it and thought, I've got to have one of those. I thought, I would love this. And I, obviously now I have an excuse. Uh, I mean, I have a, he's only one, but he, he might like it. Uh, and certainly when he gets a bit older, I think he will. Um, but I, I, I saw that, had to have it. But that's probably not the weirdest thing I've seen this week. The, I think one thing that you see something think, that's bizarre, but it's also ill-conceived. And this is, you know, on, on the top of a dashboard, especially on older cars, they have sort of an indent above where the airbag goes on the passenger side. Do you know what I mean? You have like this bit where you can put your, I don't know, trinkets, all kinds of nonsense. I've seen people turn these into gardens. So they've grown bits and pieces in there. You know, there's little trees, bonsai trees and stuff. The best one I've seen is a load of cacti. And I can't help but think, bearing in mind they've put soil in there and covered it with stones and everything else, when your airbag goes off, probably the last <laughs> thing you're going to want to see is three, three cacti <laughs> straight in your face. It must be dreadful. It's worse than the Diamante steering wheel badges and things that people put on there. I, I just can't imagine why that'd be a good idea, but genuinely that that really did make me chuckle so guys it's been a fantastic week of chatting about absolute nonsense off on tangents like we always do i hope still you've enjoyed listening to us i have nothing else to say good night stay safe thanks for listening we'll see you next time good night uk motor talk a first take media production